For those of you who don't know me, my name is Patrick Miller. I'm one of the co-directors here at Veritas. Uh, I'm a Mizzou grad. I graduated with a degree in English. My wife is a Mizzou grad. She graduated with a degree in architectural studies. She actually works at the hospital here, uh, the university hospital. And we had our first daughter nine months ago. Her name's Iris. We got a picture. That's her. Yeah, she's a cutie. That's right. Uh, make nice sounds. She's cute. She's wonderful. And one of my favorite things about Iris right now is her bedtime routine. I look forward to her bedtime routine every night. Every night before she goes to bed, uh, I take her, I sit in this chair in a room, set her on my lap, and I read her a story from her rhyme Bible. I actually stole it out of her room tonight. I, I read it to her this evening. Uh, but every night, I read her one of these stories out of here. And uh, when she sits on my lap, I give her the Bible. I say, do you want to hold your Bible? And she can't speak English yet, but that's, that's fine. She, she picks up the Bible and she holds it. And I say, all right, now you choose the story tonight, which really just means she like, sticks her finger randomly into a page and opens it up. And then I just start reading. Uh, but we must have made a, an indent like in the spine or something because there's a few stories that she always accidentally turns to. And one of those stories is called Elijah and the Prophets. Now, it's a really interesting retelling of a, of a really interesting Old Testament story. And I wouldn't read to you from a rhyme Bible if it wasn't relevant to tonight's talk. So you're going to have to put on your thinking caps because we're going to read a baby book here uh, to start off Veritas. But it's relevant. You just got to follow along, okay? Enjoy the rhymes. Just, if you hate this, just, just go with it, all right? Here we go. So it's called Elijah and the Prophets. Elijah the prophet went to see the king, King Ahab. He went with a message God wanted him to bring. There won't be any rain. Do you guys want to see the pictures? Would that help you? He, he came with a message to bring. There won't be any rain and there won't be any dew. For you worship idols, he's pointing in the picture, and your wife does too. Mm. Three years passed and the land was very dry. Elijah met the king, Ahab, on a nearby mountainside. He said to the king, now here's what we'll do. It's time to find out which God is true. The prophets of Baal, that's the idol, danced all around. They prayed to their God, but he didn't make a sound. Elijah joked, could your God be asleep? So they shouted even louder, but they didn't hear a peep. Elijah stepped forward, and after he had prayed, fire fell from heaven to the altar he had made. It burned up the altar, the stones and the sod. The people all shouted, the Lord, he is God. The end. Is that a good reading? Thank you. Uh, let's close in prayer. Um, now, this is a classic story, right? It's got all the great parts of a great story. You've got the good guy, the underdog, the prophet Elijah, who's going up against the big bad guy, Ahab, the king, and all of his idolatrous prophets. And against all odds, the underdog, he wins. And everyone lives happily ever after. That's how the story ends. And this is the story of so many books, right? It's the story of every Marvel movie that's ever been made, right? Good versus evil, a conflict, and then everything ends happily ever after. And I think that's interesting because I think a lot of times that's actually kind of our picture of the Christian life, or at least the picture that we've heard from other people. You know, if you trust God, if you do the right things, 
basically everything in the end really is just going to be all right. And even if things get tough, just believe. And if you just believe enough, if you just have enough faith, you're going to be okay and everything will be okay. And that's what the Christian life is about. That's what the Christian life is like. But is the Christian life like a Marvel movie? I love this little rhyme Bible. It's a great Bible. I read it to my daughter every night. But every time she chooses this story, you know, I kind of laugh to myself. I laugh inside because it ends with such a happy ending. Elijah wins. The people all believe, you know, it's a great ending. The only problem is that's not actually how the story ends. That's not how the story ends. In fact, the story's just begun for Elijah, and things are about to go very, very bad for him. We pick up the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19, 1 to 2. It's on the the screen, here's what happens. Now Ahab, the bad guy, the king, the idol worshiper, told Jezebel, who was his wife, your wife does too, remember? Everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, that part gets whitewashed out of the children's Bible, by the way. <laughs> I just got to turn the page and there's blood everywhere. <laughs> so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, and this is what she This is what she said, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like one of them. By tomorrow night, you are dead. And you'd think after Elijah's big victory, right? The people have all been revived, they all worship God, you'd think that Ahab would lose power, right? You think that the people would step in Jezebel's way and say, no, he's the prophet of the true God. You can't go after him. But nothing happens. His big revival, the biggest moment in his life, what his whole life had been leading up to, turns out to be nothing more than a one-hit wonder, a big old flash in the pan. No one stops Jezebel. And what happens to Elijah? Well, let's read the next verse. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. You see, maybe you think or maybe you've heard that the Christian life is about having enough faith, right? And if you have enough faith, you'll feel okay, you'll be okay, everything's going to go all right. The only problem is that's not reality, and the Bible is a realistic book. It's not even what the Bible says. It's not real life. See, the Bible is realistic. And in real life, if you've lived for any amount of time, and you guys have lived for an amount of time, you already know this, things go wrong in life. I think of the story of my friend Jeremy, the story of his 16th birthday. Now, I mean, everybody remembers their 16th birthday. This is like top five most exciting, important birthdays, right? And it was no different from my buddy Jeremy. He woke up that morning, he feels like it's Christmas Day. (laughs) You know, he goes to school, he's begging for the clock to hit 2.30 so that the final bell rings and his dad's going to pick him up. And his dad does pick him up. The bell rings. They go to the DMV. And he knows all he has to do is pass this driver's license test. And all of a sudden, he's going to have so much freedom. He can go where he wants to, when he wants to. I mean, you remember what it's like to get your driver's license. It's awesome. It's exciting. It's like you have a new life all of a sudden. So he gets there. He takes the test. And he passes. He doesn't just pass. He does great. His dad takes him home, and when they get home, he says to his dad, all right, can, 
can I just take the car out for a spin by myself? I've never done that. I just, I just want to go driving around. I'm not going to go to Quick Trip and get a Twix or something. I don't, I just let me go. And his dad's like, yeah. And he tosses him the keys to the car and he says, these are yours now. Now, Jeremy, he was excited to drive, but he never thought his parents would give him a car, much less his dad's car. It was a nice car. He's like, you've got to be kidding me. This is awesome. His 16th birthday has now become the best 16th birthday ever. And if that were the story that we want to hear, it ends right there. It ends right there, right? And he lived happily ever after. The only problem is that's not where Jeremy's story ends. As he's getting ready to get in the car, his dad stops him a second time. He says, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's something I need to tell you. I need to tell you why I'm giving you this car. He's like, uh, yeah. What? His dad goes, I, I don't really know how to say this, but your mom and I, we aren't doing very well. Our marriage isn't going really well. I'm just going to be honest with you. I haven't been happy for a really, really long time. And I wanted to leave a long, long time ago, but I never felt like I could because you needed me and your sister needed me. You guys needed me to take you around. Your mom needed me for the money to to provide for you guys. And I just told myself that if I can just make it until your 16th birthday, then you'll be able to drive you and your sister around. Then you'll be able to go get a job, drive to work, and help your mom out. If I could just make it to your 16th birthday, then I could leave. And I'm giving you this car. I just, I can't live this life anymore. I can't do it anymore. And his dad turns around, and he walks away, and he disappears for two years. That's how the story of Jeremy's 16th birthday actually ends. If you've lived life for any time, you know that life, in life, things go wrong. Things can go terribly wrong. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. Things go wrong. In fact, if I have to guess, there have been times in your life, all of us, where things have gone wrong. Maybe a lot of times it's small things. You know, I forgot to turn in an assignment to a professor and I got a bad grade. But in most of our lives, there's been big things. Maybe for you, it was your parents' divorce. Maybe for you, it was the guy that you thought, yeah, I'm going to marry that guy someday. He cheats on you. Maybe it's when someone you love gets sick. Or when you lose someone, you lose something that you know you can never, ever get back. Maybe things went wrong because right now you're surrounded by a lifestyle and an atmosphere that you never thought you would be. The party life that you thought would make you feel happy, but now you feel totally alone and things feel wrong. Maybe things have gone wrong just in your relationship with God. You thought you'd be following him, but all of a sudden it all feels dead. It all feels cold. For some of you, things going wrong, it's, it's something that's happened in the past. For others of you, it's things that have happened in the past but are still echoing in today. For others of you, it's something that's happening right now. You're in the thick of things going wrong tonight. See, the Bible is a realistic book. And this side of Eden, it not only acknowledges, but shows us that things go wrong. And so the question for you, no matter who you are, is not if things will go wrong. It's when they do, how should we, as the people who are following Jesus, how should we respond? Maybe we can make it a little bit more poignant What's the path to healing? How do we heal when things go wrong? The Bible 
is not like that confused friend who when things go wrong doesn't know what to say, so just kind of gives you a, a pat, quick answer. <laughs> yeah, just feel better. Gives you five quick steps and you'll be okay. Instead, I think if you ask the biblical sage, what should I do? How do I heal when things go wrong? I think he might respond by saying, let me tell you a story. And with that heart in mind, we're going to see what happens next in Elijah's story because he's a guy who things went majorly wrong for. And we're going to see what we can learn from his journey when things go wrong. But before we do, let's, let's just stop for a second and pray. Um, Heavenly Father, tonight we pray that you would help us to step into Elijah's journey when things go wrong. Our journeys, when things go wrong, will look different. They'll have different parts. They'll be in different orders. They'll have different pieces. And yet, I pray that through him, we might learn something that helps us walk through what we have or are experiencing today. It's your name that we pray. Amen. So let's pick up Elijah's story where we left off, right? Things have gone terribly wrong for the guy. Instead of leading a revival, which is what he expected, he's now on the run for his life. So we'll continue the story. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, let me stop here for a second. This story, the first story, which Jezebel takes place in the north of Israel, okay? The farthest south place from there is a town called Beersheba. So here's what's happened. Elijah has crossed international boundaries. He's run into a different country. And he's not just run into a different country. He's run as far as he possibly can away from Jezebel. He's a political refugee on the run for his life, escaping at all costs. He left his servant there in Beersheba. So now all of a sudden, Elijah's running and he's alone. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed, and literally in the Hebrew it says, and he begged his soul that he might die. He begged his soul to die. He says, I've had enough, Lord. I've had enough. You ever had that I've had enough God moment in your life? <laughs> You're like, I, I can't do it anymore. I can't push any farther because what's happening right now, I've had enough. That's Elijah here. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. They're all dead. I might as well be dead too. Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. So let me make a few observations before we draw any conclusions about this text. A few things, okay? Here's the first thing. When things go wrong in a bad way, it, it, it isn't just okay all of a sudden for Elijah. And yet again, that's something that sometimes when things go bad in our life, that's what our friends expect of us. Like things are just going to be okay like that. Or sometimes, honestly, it's what we expect of ourselves. Things are just going to be okay like that. Instead, what we see with Elijah is that when things go wrong, it sets him on a journey. It sets him on a process. We don't even know yet how long that journey is going to be. But what we do know is that there's no quick recovery for this problem. The second thing we learn is that it's a journey into the wilderness, now, when we think about the wilderness, I think about a, a big mountain with, like, thick forest that's very remote, but you couldn't be farther from that in the wilderness in Judea. I, I was actually, I'm going to show a video here. I was actually just in Israel, and I took a video from our bus driving through the wilderness. You might be better off calling this a desert, right? But it's not like a Sahara desert. It's mountainy, it's dusty, it's arid, it's dry, 
It's lifeless. There is no life there. You do not live in this desert, okay? And this is where Elijah is running away. This is where he's going. Here's what I want you to see. There's no life there. And the wilderness for Elijah in real life is a place of death. The third thing we see here. Elijah's journey, it takes him through a whole series of emotions. I don't know if you caught that. There's a bunch of them in there. He experiences fear, right? He's afraid and he runs away. And when he sends his servant off, you can almost imagine him kind of saying, like, I need to be alone right now. And usually when you say that kind of thing, it's because you feel alone right now. It's because you feel isolated. He doesn't just feel alone and isolated. His words reveal that he's despairing, right? He begs his soul to die. These are dark even suicidal thoughts. I hope you see how realistic the Bible is here. This is a hero of the Bible saying, I want to die. I want it to end. Because when things go wrong, I think we see it in Elijah's story, we go through a whole storm of emotions, fear, loneliness, despair, shame, anger. It's different all the time, but we go through them, right? Fourth thing I want to see here. Do you notice what the, what the author doesn't do? Do you notice what he doesn't do? He doesn't moralize. He doesn't moralize what Elijah's doing. On the one hand, he doesn't condone it. He doesn't say, and everything Elijah did here was right in, his, in the eyes of the Lord. But on the flip side, he doesn't condemn it. He doesn't say, and everything Elijah did was wrong in the eyes of the Lord. And I think that this is kind of a literary invitation for us to start asking, is Elijah right? Is this the right thing to do? Should he be doing this? And you know what I think the answer is? I don't know. It's kind of cloudy. It's kind of unclear, which is so realistic because if things have ever gone, gone wrong in your life, you know this. Your responses when that happens, some of them are good, some of them are bad, and guess what? It's tough to tell which is which. Fifth thing, things don't end well here. The story is not like ending on a happy Note at this point, Elijah begs his soul to die, and then he falls asleep. Now, you might just think, well, the dude just ran a long time. He's tired. He's taking a quick cat nap. He's going to get back up and get going. But let me make what's happening here crystal clear. The Judean desert, the, the place you just saw, it's littered with uh, water springs and cisterns, places that have water. And that's the only way you can live in the desert. You've got to have water. And so here's the deal. If you want to stay alive in the desert, you have to keep moving. You have to go from one water place to the next water place to the next water place. If you want to die in the desert, you stop moving. You lay down and you go to sleep. Elijah isn't just taking a cat nap here. He's giving up. He is trying to die. So with these observations, I think we can draw a few conclusions. Here's the first one. When things go wrong in our lives in big ways, our hearts often need to go on a journey. That's what we actually need. And it's a journey that goes through all sorts of emotions. But I'm going to tell you this right now. It's a journey that's hardly ever pleasant. It feels like a desert. It feels dry. It feels lifeless and dangerous. And so often, whenever people start trying to go on those journeys, we try to stop them. We try to tell them just to feel better. We try to tell ourselves, look, if you believed in God, if you really trusted him, you wouldn't feel this way anymore. You wouldn't experience this fear, this shame, this apathy, this anxiety. But Elijah's story makes me ask a question. What if these emotions are actually gateways? What if there's gateways through which we have to pass 
on the journey towards healing. Of course, that leads me to the second conclusion. When things go wrong, the greatest danger is stopping. The greatest danger is stopping. This is the intersection between outdoor survival and psychology. Here's what I mean. Uh, I once heard a counselor describe depression as becoming frozen or as getting stopped or stalled out in any emotion. In other words, all those emotions you go through, it's possible to get stuck. It's possible to stop the movement. And when we get stuck, what often happens, according to psychologists, it often drives us into a feedback loop of despair, self-loathing, anger, and even in the darkest parts, suicidal thoughts. It leads ultimately to the death of our soul. Now, it might be easy to sit here and talk about this in kind of a clinical, descriptive manner like I am right now. But what I want you to know is, at least in my story, I've experienced deserts. I experienced going through these kinds of deserts before I was a Christian and after I was a Christian. I want to share with you guys tonight a little bit about the story of what it was like for me to go to the desert after I was a Christian. Because I feel like I know exactly what's going on here. It was my sophomore year of college, so I'm about 20 years old. At the time, and my friends and I were at the crossing and were listening to a sermon that Keith Simon was giving. And in the middle of this sermon, Keith, as part of an illustration, tells everybody in the room to shut their eyes. Everybody shuts their eyes and says, okay, I want you to imagine your most happy childhood memory. So everybody's shutting their eyes. They're all imagining. The only problem is, with my eyes shut, I can't remember anything. Nothing is coming into my head, and I'm like, what the heck? So I kind of like open up my eyes and look down the aisles, and everybody else's eyes are shut, so I'm like shutting my eyes too, like yeah, I don't remember. And, you know, I'm kind of like, well, you know, it's a long time ago. You forget things. Not a big deal. And on the car ride home, I'm sitting in the back of the car, and I kind of ask my friends, like, did anybody else have a hard time remembering, like, your happy memories from your childhood? And all of my friends are like, oh, no way. And they just start launching into all of these, like, you know, great memories from their childhood. And everybody's telling stories except for me, of course. And at that point, I'm like, huh, something's not right here. So when I get home over break, which was pretty close to that, uh, I decide I'm going to pull out some photo albums, try and stir up some old memories, right? And I knew that my mom, when I was a kid, she kept this journal. And in this journal, she kind of wrote down the story of my life, which is a really cool thing to do. And so I said, hey, mom, could I see that journal? Because I, I'm having trouble remembering things from my childhood. And I thought if I read through it, it might kind of help me remember what happened. And so she gave it to me. And I go up to my room. I'm reading it by myself. And the, the, the kind of earliest memories, like around three-ish, like they, I actually kind of start remembering things. I'm like, oh, yeah, I do remember that. I do remember that. And reading through. And as I start nearing in about six or seven, things start getting kind of cloudier. And then they get a little bit more cloudy. And then they just get to a point where I'm reading about people and places and things I did that were important that I literally have no recollection of. It's like I could be reading the story of someone else. And I finally get to a part where I'm reading about uh, a couple that babysat, that babysat me that was like an in-home daycare. And I start reading about this couple, and all of a sudden, I just have this wave of fear and anxiety and shame and all of these confusing emotions, and I just start weeping. I'm, I'm sitting in my room, weeping uncontrollably, reading about people I have no memory of. And I have to tell you, to this day, it's the most confusing moment I've ever had in my life. So 
when that happened, it set me on a journey. It threw me into a desert. I had no idea all of a sudden who I was and where I came from and what happened when I was a little kid. And so I started moving just like Elijah, and I kept moving, and I started trying to talk to a few good friends, and I, and I talked to a mentor, and we started trying to uncover some of what happened when I was a little kid, and pieces started to fit together, but to this day, I, I, I still don't have those memories. They're, they're absolutely and totally repressed, but what I could put together as I started getting certain pieces was that some sort of abuse, something really bad, really dark, really evil, happened. I don't know what it was. I still don't know what it was. And as the year went on, I'm trying to figure this out. I'm trying to process it. It's my junior year now. And I turned 21. You know, another big birthday. We talked about 16th birthday. You got your 21st birthday. And I discovered two things when I turned 21. I discovered alcohol and nicotine. And I discovered, in fact, that both of those things are great, great ways to dampen your anxiety. And the problem was that the more I thought about my past and I didn't understand that past, the more anxious and concerned I got and the more stuck, the more frozen I got in those feelings of anxiety. And the more frozen I got, the more I wanted to medicate it, make it go away, stop thinking about it. Because I thought if I could just get my head out of this desert that I'm stuck in, then I'll be okay. Then everything's gonna be fine. And it started this feedback loop all of a sudden of anxiety, and then there was alcohol, and then there was nicotine, and if I could, and then I'd feel the anxiety, and it would just keep going back around in circles and circles and circles. I don't tell this story to you because I think 90% of the people in the room are going to resonate with it. I don't know if abuse is part of your history or not. It's part of some of our history in a room this size. I share it because I know what it's like to be in the desert, and I know what it's like to get stuck in an emotion and to have no freaking idea how in the world to get out of it. I know what it's like to be a Christian and get stuck in it. If you end up on one of these journeys, when things go wrong, and most of us, if things go wrong, we will end up on one of these journeys, most of us at some point will get stuck. Elijah is stuck. He's stuck in despair. I was stuck in anxiety. He wants to die. And we, we often want to find some way to try and medicate the pain to distract ourselves from the desert that we feel like we're stuck in. For some of us, the medication that we're using to kind of keep ourselves from from living in that reality, from paying attention to what's around us, it's what I talked about. It's alcohol. It's nicotine. For others, it's a relationship. For others, it's sex and hooking up. For others, it's busyness. For others, it's pornography. For others, it's Facebook and my cell phone. And as long as I'm distracted, as long as I don't have to pay attention to what's happening, as long as I don't get bored and have to start thinking, I can be okay. Anything that keeps us distracted, anything that keeps us from seeing the desert that's all around us, we get stuck. I want you to see something. The problem isn't the desert, even though that's what we're trying to make ourselves numb to. The desert's just a matter of fact. It's not something you choose. It's something that happens. I didn't choose to get hurt as a child. I also didn't choose as a college student to have it all stirred up again. So why? Why does God allow these deserts to come into our life, these things we just desperately want to get unstuck and out of? Why does he let us get stuck in some of these emotions that become so destructive? 
Not because the emotions are bad, but because we get stuck in them. You know, I, I don't have an answer to that question, but I wonder if it's in part, at least, in order to get us into a place where we realize that nothing less than an actual encounter with God can pry us out of our stuckness, can pry us out of our frozenness. That nothing less than God's own presence, God's own love, God's own power working in our lives can bring us life when things have gone terribly wrong. We're stuck and we don't know what the heck to do. And I hope you see that's exactly where Elijah is. And you know what God does? He shows up. Verse 5, then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. It's time to die. But then, behold, all at once, an angel, and the word angel here is, is the Hebrew word for messenger. So a messenger touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate, and he drank, and then he lay back down again. Sometimes it takes a while to get unstuck. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, and he ate, and he drank. Here's what I want you to see. In verse 1, Jezebel sends Elijah a messenger with a message that sends Elijah reeling. A message that sends him off into the desert, fleeing for his life. A message that ends up getting him stuck in despair and suicidal thoughts. But I want you to see this. God never, ever, ever gives up. In verse 5, God sends a messenger. In verse 5, God sends a messenger. He doesn't even have a long message. It's not about what he says. It's a messenger with the practical love, food, drink, that Elijah actually needs to live. You see, when things go wrong in our lives, it creates this desert. It has this power of kind of defining our whole environment and everything that we see and feel around us. And yet, what we see here is that God is in the desert. Jezebel's messenger doesn't have the last word. God sends a messenger. God is in the desert. And God's the one who gets Elijah unstuck. So, of course, what we think is he's experienced God's grace. This means that he's going to get better. He's going to get healed. He's going to just kind of pop up and leave the desert, and everything's going to be okay, right? Well, let's see. So he got up. That sounds good. He ate and he drank. Awesome. And strengthened by that food, he went back home. No, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights. Where? Until he reached Horeb. Yet again, we don't know our geography here. Horeb is further south, further into the desert, further into the wilderness, further into a far more deadly area than he even started. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Here's what I want you to see. God's grace frees him from being frozen. It frees him from getting stuck in those emotions that get him in that cycle where he can't get out of it. But God's grace doesn't free him from the desert. In fact, God's grace, you know what it does? It not only frees him, it gives him the strength to keep going through the desert. It gives him the strength to stop stopping and to keep moving through the process. Here's what I want you to see. When things go wrong, it can swallow us up. It can swallow up our environment. It can swallow up our focus and all of our attention. It can envelop all of our emotions. And yet, even when we're in the most desperate spot, God is there. God is near, and he knows exactly what Elijah needs, food and water, and he knows exactly what you need. He sends messengers. 
not to solve everything, not to just get us up and get us out, but to help us continue on our journey towards healing from what went wrong. So, of course, the question is, what do those messengers look like? Because I've never had an angel show up to me. Maybe you have. I've never had it happen. And in my own story, let me tell you what those messengers looked like. They looked like real flesh and blood people. They looked like God's word. They looked like, you know, God, he gave me a girlfriend at the time who saw that I was medicating myself and that I was trying to escape from something, and she called me out on it, and it was really hard, but that was a loving messenger from God. He gave me a small group of friends who didn't kind of show up and tell me how to get fixed, but they empathized with me, and they just walked beside me. He gave me his word, and especially inside that word, he gave me the Psalms, and those Psalms were like a lifeboat to me because they're full of painful, lamenting, hurting words that I didn't even know I was allowed to say to God, but it turns out you are. Have you ever read the Psalms? I will tell you what, you think you know how to pray, and you read those things, and you realize those guys knew how to pray and cry out the hurts and pains to God. God gave me another messenger. He gave me a mentor, a leader, who asked me questions that not only kind of helped me explore the history of past abuse that I had experienced, but also my whole past. And that mentor, he showed me love, he showed me care, precisely in the most painful and ashamed places that were in my heart. I had to learn to see through those people, not like see through them, but to see through them to God, to see through them to see the God who was working through them and showing me his love through them. I had to learn how to receive God's love through people's love, God's love through God's word. If things have gone wrong, if you are somewhere in that desert, is God sending you messengers right now? I just want to be realistic with you because the Bible's realistic. See, just like Elijah, those messengers that God sent to my life, they didn't heal me in an instant. And what they really did is they gave me strength to continue through that desert. And the truth is that nine years, that happened when I was 20, nine years from now, I'm 29 now, that desert is still a part of my life today. As much as I wish I don't go back there, I don't want to be there, I promise you that again and again in my adult life, it didn't matter that I got married, it didn't matter that I became a dad, it doesn't matter that I do ministry, I find myself going back into that same old desert. And yet, as painful as the desert is, I've learned that God is there. In fact, it's often in the desert, the desert that abuse created, that I see Jesus most clearly, that I find that I need him most desperately, that I find I want him most truly, that I am most connected to the pain of his cross, and I am most hopeful about the spring of life that his resurrection has actually opened up for us all. Have things gone wrong in your past? Have things gone wrong in your present? Do you know what it's like to be in the desert? Do you know what it's like to get stuck there? I want you to hear this. If you don't hear anything else, just hear this. Jesus is in that place. Jesus walked that path before you ever got there. And he alone can hold you up and give you strength in the storm of emotions and hurt that are so terribly confusing and you don't even know what's going on, but he does. 
And I make this plea to you. When you're in that desert, turn your face towards him. Let go of whatever is keeping you stuck. Just let go of it. Turn your heart towards him and let him use that desert to turn your pain into thirst for God. If you do that, you're not going to feel good all the time. You're going to be living in a desert. I spent a lot of my time in a desert. That's just my reality. But I'll tell you this. You will discover that he loves you more deeply, more completely, and more satisfyingly than you could ever possibly imagine. And I wouldn't trade away my desert if it meant losing that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know every hair on our head. You knew us before we were born. You made each one of us in our mother's womb. You set your plans out before us, before we ever entered this world. And so if anyone knows the desert that gets created in our hearts, when things go wrong in big ways and little ways, in deeply painful ways and kind of painful ways and not so painful ways, you know them all. You would never wish that desert on us, and yet you are there. You are present. Jesus, you walked through a desert to love us, to save us, to know us. And some of us, we may never find healing until heaven, but we know that heaven is to come. Set our hope on you, set our eyes on you, set our hearts on you. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.